First Timothy, we've gone as far as chapter 2. As we come to chapter 2 of this epistle, as Paul the Apostle is run, writing to this young protege who he calls a true son in the faith. And he is writing to Timothy concerning his conduct as a pastor and then also how the church should function. And if you've been with us in our study on Sunday morning over the last few weeks, as we have seen in chapter 1, that Paul gives Timothy two main charges, or that is, here are two commands. Uh, Paul uh, uses that word, which is a military term, which is a very strong word. Timothy, I charge you that you teach no other doctrine. And, and of course, that's a major theme in the pastoral epistles and in this letter as well. Over 30 references of Paul telling Timothy and Titus, another young uh, pastor that he had trained for the ministry, uh, that over 30 references to sound doctrine, to, to teaching the truth of the Word of God, to the gospel message. And, and we see that certainly already has been emphasized to Timothy right off the bat as we started in chapter 1 and verse 3. So I charge you, Timothy, to teach no other doctrine because we know that that strange doctrine had come into the church. Paul had prophesied to the Ephesian elders that some five years before this that there are going to be those savage wolves that are going to come in and they're going to draw disciples after themselves, speaking perverse things. And it is Paul now saying to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus right now, that you don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies, those things that don't bring godly edification. And you uh, are to know that there are those who are desiring to be teachers of the law, but they understand neither what they say or the things which they affirm. So we, we looked at that very carefully over the last couple of weeks. And then as we ended chapter 1, the second charge that he gave to Timothy, which is very, very important for us today as well, is that, Timothy, I charge, I commit to you that you wage the good warfare, that is, you fight the good fight of the Spirit, because it's a battle out there, isn't it, folks? And if you're going to be the parent that God wants you to be, if you want to be the man, the, the woman of God, if you want to be the grandparents, uh, who, as you desire to live for him, it is a battle. And we need to fight the good fight of the Spirit. And there is an enemy and there is a world that comes against us. So if you didn't listen to that study, I would encourage you. I think it will be a tremendous blessing to you as you listen um, to our study last week. But now as we go into chapter 2, Paul's going to instruct Timothy, who is pastoring this church, concerning public worship and prayer. And then later on in the chapter, we will see that he also gives instructions to Timothy concerning the role of men in the church and also the role of women in the church, which is going to be important for us to study as well. Because we know that the church today, that many churches are feeling the pressure to uh, allow culture to make decisions for them uh, concerning roles in women in the church rather than the Word of God. So we'll look at that when we get to that next time. But this morning, uh, as we begin chapter 2, we read, Therefore, I exalt, first of all, that supplication, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 
for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul is telling Timothy, and it's for us today, it is of priority, it is of importance. I exhort, first of all, that Timothy, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and given a thanks be made for all men. And you might want to underline that word, all men. Not some men, not those I like, those I agree with, or those who think like me. It is for all men, and, and it is something that he makes very clear here. It speaks of all of mankind, all human beings. That's the Greek word. Verse 4 is tied into it that it, it's God that desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is different than the Greek word that we will read about in verse 8, that I desire that men pray everywhere. He's talking then about individual men you guys, speaking of the male gender specifically. And one of the things that we're going to see very clearly in this chapter is gender is very important to God. So first of all, Timothy, this is a priority, that there would be prayer for all men. And that includes verse 2, kings and all who are in authority. Now, I know that we pray here as a church. We pray at Calvary Chapel. Uh, on Tuesday, the ladies are going to gather and they're going to pray. Um, on Saturday mornings, every Saturday, men come together and, and they pray. And I'm very thankful for those men who come. They pray uh, for, for the church. They pray uh, for those prayer requests that come up. Uh, they spend that time in prayer. And I'm very grateful for those who come on Saturday mornings. They've been doing that for years. And Jerry Sanders has been a big part of that and starting that and being so faithful to it. But some of you guys come out for the Saturday mornings morning prayer. I'm very grateful for the prayer chain and, and those prayer requests that, that come in. And I know many of you are on the prayer chain. And, and if you want to be on the prayer chain, get a hold of us and, and we'll put you on the prayer chain where email comes in and we give those prayer requests that come in constantly. And I hope that those of you that are on the prayer chain, that you really look at that and you pray for those requests and those that come in several prayer requests every week. And so prayer is important here at Calvary Chapel. We pray in the services. The kids pray. The youth spend time praying. But I hope and what I, I really desire is that we would really make it a priority here. We have made it very clear that, and I think we demonstrate it very clear, that the teaching of the Word of God is of priority and importance, and it should be. But I want prayer to be thought of in the same way. And we can have prayer meetings. We can have uh, prayer and fasting, which we usually do for a whole week as a church, or uh, uh, we do it once a year, or maybe sometimes a couple times a year. We will gather here at night for a time of people to come together and to, for us to really seek the Lord. And it can be a time where maybe only a couple people show up, only a few come out. And I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. Or to try to put a guilt trip on you guys. It, it, this is a challenge for us. And this is a challenge for me as a pastor to, to remind us that prayer needs to be so much of a priority and, and uh, is the life of this church and the teaching of the Word of God. And in the early church, 
Prayer was a priority. We see that very clearly in the book of Acts. In the earliest days of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the disciples continued steadfastly in prayer. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled together shook. In chapter 6, verse 6, when the disciples, they had prayed. And as you continue through the book of, of Acts, there's 14 other references to where the believers got together and prayed, the Christians. It was a priority. And I like what one commentator said, that he said that when a local church ceases to depend on prayer, God ceases to bless the ministry. And I really believe that with all of my heart. And as we are committed to prayer here at Calvary Chapel Greeley, it is the lifeline of this church. It is the vehicle which God works, and we need to be praying, especially in the days in which we are living in. So I, first of all, exhort four things listed here, prayer for all men. Number one, that you give supplication. Now, many of you, you know what that word means. It just means a request. It is simply asking for something. It is not give me, give me, and claim it and name it kind of thing. It is a request for a felt need. And Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4 that you don't have to be anxious for anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And I am so thankful that we can come to the Lord and we can request, we can give him our hearts. Lord, here's my request. Here's my supplication. This is what's on my heart. And he desires for us to do that. He wants us to come. Jesus said, ask, please ask that your joy may be full. So we're to give our supplications to the Lord. Second of all, prayer, that's a broader word referring to all communication with God and what a privilege it is I mean really think about this that we have the opportunity to, to pray to the creator of the universe because we have relationship with him because we can go to him and he desires as a loving father for his children to come and to remember what in Romans chapter 8 that we have not the spirit of fear but the spirit of adoption that we can cry out Abba Father he's our Papa and just as my children still even today even though they're adults I want them to come to me I want them to communicate with me that fellowship and relationship is very very important and prayer is a big part of that as it is with a loving father as we come to him. So prayer is communication with the Lord uh, and, and it's wonderful to just have a heart of prayer. We can do that anywhere we're at at any time and, and we can pray as long as we want to the Lord and it's a privilege. Second, third of all, that is, first there's supplication, prayer, thirdly, intercessions, as you know, is requests we make on behalf of others. We need to be praying for others. Be praying for your kids, for your grandkids, for family, for friends, those that are linked to you in your life. And I pray that, that, and I ask that you would, that is, pray for me. Pray for the church here. I covet your prayers. You might remember that in Romans chapter uh, 15, there's only three times in the whole book of Romans that Paul says, I urge you, I, I beseech you, I beg you. And, and in one of those times in chapter 15, he says, I, I beg you, pray for me as I go to Jerusalem and as I am going to minister to the saints there. And, and I ask that you would pray for me as the pastor here at Calvary Chapel. Pray for the leadership. Uh, pray for the church. And I covet your prayers. And, and those of us who are in leadership, we do as well. So then lastly, there's the giving of thanks, which is 
so important because it's the only one of the four that will continue into eternity. We will give thanks forever and forever and forever. And yet of these four things of prayer, this may be the hardest one to practice. To be thankful. The giving of thanks. Especially when we're going through a time of difficulty and we're going through a time of pain or challenge or trial. And as a Christian, all throughout the scriptures, I see that we are told to be thankful. And we can be thankful even during that time we go through the trials because we have the Lord in our lives. And we are saved. And we are forgiven. And we know that his promises are true for us. We also know that there's no separation from his love. Neither trial or distress or famine, none of those things separates us from the love of God. And we can know that his promises are true for us and we can rest in his love. And so we can give thanks in those times as even the church at Thessalonica was told, that give thanks in all things. And in those situations even, we can be thankful to the Lord that we have him, that he sees us, that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And we can be thankful for God's grace that has been extended to us. And we see that particularly in David's Psalms, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He oftentimes would express the difficulty he was going through and, and his soul being downcast and the trials that he went through. But he always came back to being thankful to the Lord. We know that Daniel, the, the man of God in the Old Testament, he practiced giving thanks when he was praying while he was in captivity. He was taken to Babylon when he was a teenager, never to come back, separated from his family, separated from his parents. But yet Daniel desired not to defile himself, to please the Lord. And when he prayed, he prayed with thanksgiving. We know that Paul, again, making that reference to the book of uh, Philippians, that Paul is writing that book when he's in his first imprisonment in Rome. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know whether he's going to go home be with the Lord. Caesar knows Nero is going to put him to death or whether he's going to be released. So he writes to that church and the whole theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And he, he writes about rejoice in the Lord always. And in that verse, chapter 4, that I've already mentioned to you, be anxious for nothing but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And that's the important part of that. We give our prayers, we give our requests, we give our supplications, but we do it with thanksgiving. And he goes on to say that as you do that, then the peace of God will rule in your hearts, will, will come as he will give you that peace that passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when we pray, we're to do it with thanksgiving. And I think that's an important aspect of prayer in a Christian's life. So we are to pray in this way for all men. And verse 2 goes on to tell us, for kings and all who are in authority. Now think about this. Who was in authority when Paul was writing this? It was Caesar and Nero. Paul's writing this, the best guess, in about 63 AD. Uh, scholarship says that, that he wrote this epistle between 63 and 66 AD. 
He wrote it after his first imprisonment, which would end about 62, 63 AD. He would go to Macedonia. He's writing to Timothy. He already had appeared before Caesar Nero. And after that, we know that Caesar Nero goes insane. In July of, of 64 AD, history tells us that Caesar Nero would burn the city of Rome down. He turned and he blamed the Christians for that burning. And he began to heavily persecute the Christians. Uh, he would uh, burn them at the stakes. He would feed them to the lions in the amphitheater. He was a very cruel man. He's the one that would give the orders to have Paul executed, beheaded in 67 AD. And in the same year, he would have Peter be crucified upside down. So Paul is writing this when Caesar Nero was in power. And he says, you're to pray for all kings, all who are in authority. Now, he didn't come along, if he wrote this in 63 AD, and later on and say, oh, I, I want to make an addendum, you know, don't pray for Nero. You know, don't pray for, for the emperor. And, and he is writing this, um, and persecution would come very heavily against the Christians. Matter of fact, that Timothy, years later, would be beaten to death in the streets of Ephesus. We are to pray for all men. And that includes those who are in authority. And I believe that, that Paul, he attaches it, keep in mind, to verse 4, who desire that all men be saved. That's the heart of the Lord. It doesn't make sense for us who are concerned about our leaders. And we are, aren't we? I, I, I get it. As I see the direction that our leaders are going and the things that are being talked about in this election coming up, uh, with things that we're seeing being passed through the you know, legislative branch in our own state, I get it, folks. But it reminds us as Christians the, all the importance, uh, especially today, to be praying and to be praying for this next election. Lord, please get a hold of the hearts of, of our leaders, of our governor, of our legislative leaders, of our president, of, of those in Washington, policymakers. May their eyes be opened up to your light. It's imperative that we pray for our leaders, not just the ones that we agree with. This is God's commandment given to us. This isn't Pastor Jeff, so don't be mad at me, all right? This is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. And we are to be praying for those in authority. And why should we pray for those in authority? Well, we know, verse 4, he desires that all men be saved. But verse 2 also goes on to say, as we continue, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So... Praying for leaders, does it really work? Does it really affect things? We think it, it won't work. You know, I was reading about in 1989, those of us who are old enough to remember, when Ronald Reagan was president, and he was credited with winning the Cold War. And you might remember his speech that he made in Berlin in June of 1987. He's there before the, the Berlin Wall that separated Berlin, the west side, and then the east side that was under communism and, and, and communist rule. And, and that speech that President Reagan, famous speech, that Gorbachev, you know, tear down this wall. But something was taking place. 
when he did that. On the other side of the wall, on the east side, the communist side, there was a little church that was there, St. Nicholas's. It is the oldest church in Berlin. And a group of Christians began to pray. They called it the prayer of freedom, the prayer for peace is what they called it. It started out with about 20 people. And the communists, they didn't really take notice of it. They didn't care if the Christians got together in small groups. You know, they didn't see it as a threat. They, they underestimated the power of prayer. Well, all of a sudden, that prayer group began to grow. It grew over the next weeks and months to where they had to get a bigger place. The communists started to take note of it. They then began to intimidate and threaten people not to go to this prayer meeting. They continued to meet. It continued to grow. Uh, the communists tried to then block the streets and ways to get to their prayer meeting. It began to spread to the other churches. Well, two years later, in October 9, 1989, at that prayer meeting at St. Nicholas's, at that church, they had 2,000 people inside the church praying and another 10,000 people outside praying for freedom. They were praying for peace. They were praying for peace for their nation. And one month later, November 9th, 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. I think that we will all agree on this, that our nation needs revival. The church needs revival. The hope of our nation is a turning to Jesus Christ. And I think that what would happen, what would happen if the Christians of this nation for the next year, that we would make it a priority to get on our knees and pray for our nation and pray for our leaders and pray for the church. That Lord breathe life into the church. And Lord, may the church be committed to righteousness and the word of God and, and what the word of God declares. I think what would happen? Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, the Lord came to Solomon and said, I've heard your prayers. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. So this is a priority for us. It's a challenge for us. So I asked Calvary Chapel, let's work together. Let's really make prayer a priority here. Let's be a praying church. And remember, the Lord is the one that puts those in authority. Romans chapter 13. I don't understand it all. I've looked at those who are in authority and I think, why? But he has a plan, he has a purpose, and it's all coming to culminating to the return of Jesus Christ, but we are to be praying for our nation and we are to be praying for our leaders. And we pray that, that all men, as we're going to see here, that God's desire that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights in our study of the book of Revelation, when John was exiled to the island of Patmos, it was under the rule of Domitian. In some ways, Domitian was worse than Nero. Domitian hated the Christians. It was the late in the first century, and he came on the throne. His persecution was very systematic, and he was persecuting the Christians very heavily. 
Well, John was the last of the living apostles that was on the scene. And so he takes John, and tradition tells us that he took John in the amphitheater there in, in Ephesus, and he put him in a pot of boiling oil. And the people were shouting, they were screaming, and nothing happened. And all of a sudden, the crowd became quiet. And Domitian, who's watching this, see, he thought, if I can get rid of this John, who's the last living apostle on the scene, that Nero had killed Paul and, and Peter 30 years before that time. If I can get rid of John, then this thing called Christianity is going to die out and go away. Well, nothing happened to John, so Domitian cries out, get rid of him, banish him. So he's banished to this rocky island of Patmos where they would send prisoners, and usually when you went there, you didn't come back. And there is John all alone. And it tells us in chapter 1 that he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And all of a sudden, he hears the voice of many waters and he turns to see the Lord. And there is the Lord with him, standing in the midst of seven lampstands, which are the churches. And he's here in our midst here this morning. And he receives the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that vision, he sees in chapter 4 the one that's on the throne he sees those who are before the throne, that is the church, that's singing a new song of every tribe, tongues, peoples, and nations. You have redeemed us by your blood. And that's the song of the church. We see that the second coming of Jesus Christ he would see in the millennium reign in the new heaven and new earth. And he comes back from that exile, and he comes to the Christians, and he reminds them that the Lord is the one that's in control and on the throne. And they needed to hear that message. And he is going to come back. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And that we're going to be with the Lord for all eternity. And we need that message as well. But in the meantime, we need to be praying. And we need to be praying for our nation and to know that God is in control as we pray for all men. Paul writes, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the uh, knowledge of the truth. It's good. It's, it's pleasing to God. God wants us to pray for our leaders. It's acceptable to God. He receives that. It is a good thing Then verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter would write something very similar in Second Peter chapter 2. God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And, and sometimes we can think, Lord, will you just call down fire on this person? Or will you deal and bring judgment and wipe out that leader or this group? Sometimes we can have the attitude, I can't wait till God's judgment comes in fire and brimstone. But we need to keep in mind the heart of God really is his desire all men be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Salvation coming to Paul who says, I was an insolent man. I was violently arrogant. I killed Christians. I persecuted the church. I caused those to blaspheme. 
And here he reminds us in this epistle that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, in verse 15 of chapter 1, and reminds us that it's God's desire that men come to the knowledge of the truth. And you might remember in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, to the cross, and they're in Samaria with the disciples, and, and this city of Samaria did not receive them. There was a lot of prejudice and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, and John and James, they, the two brothers called the Sons of Thunder, they said to Jesus as this village rejected them, said, hey, let's call down fire from heaven. Shall we do that and consume these people just like Elijah did? They were trying to, to put this spiritual twist on it. That's what Elijah did, the fiery prophet. But Jesus turned to his disciples and says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save. Those of you who've been with us in the book of Revelation, remember chapter 8. The seventh seal is opened up, and there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And when the seventh seal is opened up, seven angels stand up with trumpets, and they begin to blow those trumpets, and heavy judgment is coming down on a Christ-rejected world. In chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounded, and then all of a sudden there's seven more angels that will stand up, we will see, and, and they will have bowls of judgments poured out on a Christ-rejected world and the 24 elders are before the throne saying the nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged listen judgment will come to a Christ rejected world and the kingdom of God will be established the great white throne judgment of chapter 20 is real as the unrest you know the the unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected those who are non-believers, they will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be cast into the lake of fire. It is real. And those who are teaching that hell or eternal damnation is not real or it's not eternal, they are deceiving people. There was a silence when those judgments were about ready to be poured out. It is an intense time. It is very sobering when we read about it. And, and there's been a lot written about why was there this silence in chapter 8. And I just wonder, I just wonder, it's a suggestion that there was a silence that was taking place because this is a very sobering, intense moment in human history that these judgments are going to be unleashed that's going to lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And it's like all of heaven is taking this deep breath and there's this incredible sense of awe because there's no holding it back there's no stopping it thy kingdom come thy will be done and sin and rebellion will be judged Please don't picture the father up there in heaven kind of rubbing his hand. <laughs> all right, I've been waiting for this, you know, and, and all the people before the throne are high-fiving it, you know, and, and, you know, hooting and hollering, all right, this is it, you know, all this. No, there is a sense of, wow, there is a silence. Ezekiel 33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Malachi chapter 7, verse 18, God delights in mercy. Isaiah wept over the judgments he proclaimed. Jeremiah did too, the weeping prophet. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, your house is left to you desolate. So I got a question. Do you and I weep? Do we weep that people reject the gospel? 
and Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to understand that God desires that all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. How do we look at our community? It should break our hearts, the people around us, because eternity is real. And the judgment is going to be real. And people don't want Christ and truth. And Paul goes on in verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In Job chapter 9, when Job was going through incredible loss, he says, For God is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any daysman, or that is mediator, between us who may lay his hand on us both. And Paul, now writing to Timothy, reminds us that there is a mediator between an infinite God and finite man. Because God came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is our mediator, as John writes in his first epistle, that we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he lays his hands on us because he stretched out his hand on the cross and gave himself as a ransom for all. Listen, there is no other mediator. There's no other religious leader, Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha. There's no other, you know, um, church is a mediator, a pastor, a priest, no patron saint, not Mary. I grew up believing that you could pray to Mary, you could pray to the saints. I grew up in the Catholic Church. We went to St. Patrick Cathedral last month in New York as, as we went there um, uh, my family, beautiful, absolutely incredible architecture. But they had these little stations, you know, and, and they had some that were dedicated to certain patron saints that you can pray to. In the church today, you'll hear some that will pray in, in, to God known by many names. No. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man. That is Jesus Christ, period. Are we clear on that? And then as we finish the chapter, he gave himself as a ransom for all, for which I was appointed a, a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The message that Paul preached was salvation only through Jesus Christ. In Corinth, he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified and known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul, he was about prayer and preaching. Really good combination, right? Listen. Coming to the cross means that we pray for all men because he died for all men. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these important reminders, commandments that are given to us in your word. And, and I do pray that now as we come to the communion table, Lord, the communion table for the believer who has come to Christ, and, and if anyone is here, you've never come to Jesus Christ, listen, he is our mediator. There's none other. It's not you, it's not me, it's not the church, it's not any other religious leader. Only Jesus will bring you to relationship with the Father, salvation, and forgiveness. And we come to the communion table to remember what Jesus did for us in going to the cross and allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. So if you're here this morning, today is the day of salvation. Come to him in faith. And you will be forgiven and saved if you sincerely in your heart pray this, if it means anything to anyone this morning. That Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me on the cross. I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me a sinner. And I believe you're alive. 
I believe that you're speaking to my heart. Sit upon the throne of my heart and my life. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for loving me. And I want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And after we take communion, we're going to have a prayer team. And I would ask that you.